Coming up at Easter, we have the opportunity uh, now in the weeks leading up to Easter and then Palm Sunday to collect our Annie Armstrong offering for North American missions. And uh, I want you to understand what these gifts go to. Every year in Southern Baptist life, we have two main mission giving opportunities. Lottie Moon at Christmas and Annie Armstrong at Easter. And both of these offerings are named after ladies in Southern Baptist life who literally gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. And so these offerings have been named after them in their honor and in their memory. Of course, Lottie Moon, at Christmas we give to our international missionaries who are overseas and around the world. Uh, Annie Armstrong at Easter is our North American missionaries. And I want you to understand every dollar that you give gets directly to the mission field. You see, the administration of the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board are taken care of through your cooperative program dollars. And the cooperative program is in the mission section of our budget. But the missionaries on the field are supported mainly through these mission offerings. And that means that these mission offerings are very important to their work. And in North America for about 10 years now and probably the next 30 years or until Jesus comes, the effort in North America is penetrating lostness in the major metropolitan cities in North America. Uh, 32 cities, 32 metropolitan areas have been selected that are woefully underchurched. Here in Concord, we might have an evangelical church for every 1,200 people. Some places in North America, they have an evangelical church for every 120,000 people. So you can see how woefully underchurched we are even in North America. And our North American Mission Board is trying to relieve that and penetrate lostness in these major cities, following the example of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament who went to the main cities carrying the gospel there. So help us out at Easter with your gifts given to Annie Armstrong. And uh, we want to challenge you to do that. Speaking of Easter, leading up to Easter, I want to encourage you to go on Amazon and get a book entitled The Final Days of of Jesus, the final days of Jesus by one of your Southern Baptist scholars, Andreas Kostenberger. J.D. Greer up the road at Summit Church uh, says this is an enlightening and edifying uh, look at the most important week in history. One gets the sense that we should proceed through these pages on our knees. It's a look at the most important week of the most important person who ever lived. If you want a tool to help you to prepare for Easter, I can't think of one better. It walks through each day of the final week of Jesus' earthly life, describing what he encountered and what he suffered. The final days of Jesus. I would encourage you to get that. Let me ask you to find your copy of the scripture and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be in chapter 6 and 7 this morning. And I'm going to preach a sermon that I can almost guarantee you that very few of you have ever heard a sermon on Melchizedek. Have you ever heard a sermon on him? Not many people, right? Uh, He's a very mysterious figure. I can remember in my own Christian life when I was a new believer and, and then after I was called into the ministry, I went to my pastor and I said, Pastor, who in the world is this guy named Melchizedek? He's a very mysterious figure, but a very important 
figure as hopefully we will see today. On your sermon outlines that I've provided for you, uh, right up top, the key concepts to remember. Number one, you and I simply must have a high priest to represent us before God. We cannot go before God on our own. Number two, there is salvation in no one other than Jesus Christ. Any belief contrary to that is not New Testament Christianity. Number three, we have the confidence that the salvation Jesus gives is complete. No one can add anything to what he gives to us. And number four, we have the assurance that Jesus himself prays for our needs. He's our intercessor and because of the resurrection, his intercession for his children never ends. He never dies, thus his intercession for us never dies. I want to ask you to keep those things in mind as we go through this chapter. You know, oftentimes as Bible teachers and preachers, we stay in the thenness and don't get into the nowness. You follow what I'm saying? We stay in the past and we don't get into the application of what it means for us today. This is a text that we have to understand the thenness if we're going to understand the application in the nowness. And so in the first point today, we're almost exclusively through that entire point going to be in the thenness. But when we get to the third point, it's going to be almost exclusively application, the nowness. I want you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And let's pick up reading in verse 19. And what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus is an anchor for our soul. Jesus is an anchor for our soul. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been obtainable through the Levitical priesthood... For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. 
For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Lord Jesus you told us in John chapter 16 That when your spirit comes, when you sent your spirit, that he would open our understanding to receive the things that you tell us. Lord, we ask today that you would open our understanding regarding this mysterious figure. That we can understand the wonderful things indeed that are being told to us in this chapter about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so open our understanding, open our ears and open our eyes that we might behold glorious things from your book. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Folks, I want you to listen to the following verses, most of which come to us out of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, the 24th chapter, what is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus said there, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these, all of these, are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then in John 16, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now folks, as you hear those verses and you hear the words of the Lord Jesus, what is it that comes to your mind as you listen to those verses? What comes to my mind is trials and tribulation and hardships. That is a daily part of our lives. As a pastor in any given week, I might be approached with any number of subjects. For instance, somebody may meet with me and say, Pastor, I'm going through a trial in my marriage. My husband or wife is about to leave me. Can you give me some counsel and can you pray for us? I deal with people diagnosed with cancer and other dreaded diseases. You, you know somebody in that situation, no doubt. I've dealt before with parents who had a child facing addiction issues. People lose jobs, people go bankrupt. We read in the news perhaps at any given time about a young family that all of them have been snuffed out in an automobile accident. Trials and tribulations all around us. It's going on even now. Folks, we've got to remember that we live in a fallen world. And the beauty of the storyline of redemption in the Bible is that God is making all things new. Not only is there redemption in Christ, but one day He is going to completely remove the curse. I never get tired of reading the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22 that describes that day that he's going to make all things new. But what is it that we need until then? We need an anchor. We need strength. We need stability. Why do we need strength and stability? Why do we need an anchor? Because we are going through the storms of life. Now the good news is, as this passage in Hebrews 6 and 7 points out, that is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. He is an anchor for our souls. And as the Bible says in Romans 5, those who put their trust in Him will never be disappointed. Aren't you glad of that? Folks, it is not surprising that in the early days of the church, in the midst of all of the persecution that they went through, the anchor was was adopted as a symbol of Christian faith. Not just the fish... Or the cross, but an anchor was adopted as a symbol, a symbol of Christian hope and certainty. Thomas Aquinas once said, The anchor of hope fixes the soul firmly in God in this world, which is like a kind of sea. There's a difference, however, that whereas sailors cast their anchors down into the depths to grip the ocean bed, the Christian's anchor ascends to the supreme heights of of heaven above. It is a hope that enters into the holy of holies above behind the curtain. John Calvin, that great reformer, wrote, Our hope rises and flies aloft because it finds nothing to stand on in this world. It cannot rely on created things but finds its rest in God alone. Still another writes, There is a pleasing analogy in connection with the hiddenness of the anchor and its hold. 
In the case of sailors, the sands in which the anchor is fixed and holds are hidden and invisible, and yet the sailors are secure, although they cannot see how the arms of the anchor are held. So also we, placed as we are amid the waves of this world, do not see the heavenly realities, and yet we are so joined to them through hope that we cannot be moved by any onset of fear. Now what is it that we learn in our text today? We learn that the, that the one who is in Christ is secure because Christ is secure. Christ never fails. And Christ ever liveth to make intercession for us. And so Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20 also says that Christ who provides this anchor of hope for our souls has gone before us as a forerunner. He leads the way into the very presence of God but while being a forerunner he has not deserted us. In fact, as our forerunner, he's the very one who goes on ahead in in order to open up the way for those who follow him. Because he's the one who's opened the way, he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Now folks, that's good news. I want us to see how it's developed in this text today. First of all, I want you to see with me that Jesus is our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now most of this chapter is taken up with this theme and since there's so many verses involved and we've already read them, we're not going to read them all again. But we, we see that Christ here is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now in the book of Hebrews, we've already learned that Jesus is our new high priest. I think of what he said back at the end of chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4 beginning in verse 14 he said, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus the Son of God let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we've already seen that Jesus is our great high priest. Now to that truth, back in chapter 4... Now is added chapter 7. And in chapter 7 we see the added dimension that not only is Jesus our high priest, but he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Folks, this morning I want to paint with some broad strokes. Because where I want to ultimately land down is at the close of the chapter. But it's going to take us a while to get there. So hang on. Before we get there, we've got got to set the table a bit. Because if we don't set the table, we're not going to be able to appreciate the application that's being made in this passage. Now this character by the name of Melchizedek is one of the most puzzling characters in all of the Bible. He shows up in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14 we see that there are some kings from the east who have come in uh, to the area that was to become known as Israel and Abraham's nephew Lot has been taken captive. And Abraham assembles an army and he goes after those kings and he defeats those kings and he rescues Lot and he brings Lot back. Melchizedek is the king and priest of Salem which was Jerusalem before it was named Jerusalem and Melchizedek comes out to meet Abraham. 
And Abraham pays tithes to him and Melchizedek in turn blesses Abraham. Now again, he is a very mysterious figure. He is said by the writer of Hebrews to be without genealogy, without father or mother, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so he's a very puzzling figure to us. But we're not alone in that. You see, in ancient times, in some Jewish rabbinical writings, Melchizedek was associated that the Jewish priest that had gone out around the Dead Sea and set up a community there, in their writings, they associated with Melchizedek with some kind of angelic figure that was going to appear at the end of the ages. Now, that's not correct. But nonetheless, that's what some believed. In the period of the early church, the first 500 years after the time of the apostles, the early church fathers, some of them believed that the story of Melchizedek had to do with the gospel going to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. They said, here is an uncircumcised priest going out to meet the father of the Jews, the circumcised. The circumcised pays tithes to the uncircumcised. And so they said this whole episode is supposed to be some type of analogy of the inclusion of the gospel of Jesus Christ going beyond the Jews so that the Jews would not be able to boast in their circumcision. Now the only problem with that interpretation is that Abraham, when he meets Melchizedek, is also uncircumcised. Others found in the story of Abraham and Melchizedek some kind of prefiguring of the Lord's Supper because he brought bread and wine out to Abraham. And so as you can see, there's been all kinds of theories about this strange character. As people have come up with theories, it's not surprising that some have said, Aha, we know who he is. We know exactly who he is. He's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. He's Jesus Christ showing up before Bethlehem, before the Incarnation. But folks, I want us to look a little bit further at what is actually being said here. And first of all, I want to say to you that he is not Jesus Christ. He's not Jesus Christ. He is a type of Christ, but he is not Christ. In Old Testament studies, you'll run into what is known as typology. You have a type. And you have an anti-type. For instance, you have the lambs being slaughtered. They are the type. And then you have Christ, the anti-type. What were the lambs in the Old Testament? They pointed to the one who is the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so the lambs were the type, Christ was the antitype. The lambs were the shadow that pointed to Christ who is the reality. So you with me in that? You understand? And so Melchizedek is the type and Christ is the antitype. Melchizedek is the shadow, Christ is the reality. Melchizedek is not the Christ, but rather he pointed to the Christ. The writer of Hebrews is very clear in saying in verse 3 that he is not the Christ. In verse 3 he says he is one who resembles the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. Okay, how is he a type of the Son of God? The writer points out that Christ's priesthood is like that of Melchizedek. Now stay with me. I'm trying to summarize here with broad strokes. I want you to remember the context of the book of Hebrews. He is writing to Jewish people, primarily Jews who have now become Christians. And because they become Christians, they are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. 
And some of them have grown quite discouraged. They weren't persecuted like that in Judaism because the Roman Empire accepted Judaism. But now they're Christians and they're being persecuted for their faith. And some of them are thinking what we need to do is we need to go back to the, to the temple. We need to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices. We need to go back to the Levitical priesthood. And the writer is showing them that they cannot do that. They cannot go backwards in the redemption story. Yes, they had a priesthood in Judaism. The high priest had to be in the line of Aaron and all the priests had to be of the tribe of Levi. We might, have, we might say that they had to be card-carrying Levites. But now they have a greater high priest in Jesus. Now Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah as far as his humanity. And so what are, them, what are some of them naturally thinking? They're thinking how can Jesus be a high priest? We have been taught all our lives that priest and the high priest has to come from the tribe of Levi. How can Jesus... The Messiah be our new high priest when he doesn't come from the right tribe. And so he's writing what he does about Melchizedek to show that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And that's where Melchizedek comes in. He says Melchizedek was not only a priest, but he was also a king. The king of Salem. And we're reminded that Jesus is our Messiah is not only a priest, but he too is a king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. In fact, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He's three roles. The sons of Levi were only priests. Melchizedek was a priest and a king. And so he's saying Melchizedek had a greater priesthood than the sons of Levi. Plus, we don't know anything about his genealogy. We don't know who his, who his father was. We don't know who his mother was. We know nothing about his birth. We know nothing about his death. So verse 3 is not saying that, that Melchizedek was some type of divine figure. It's simply saying he suddenly appears on the scene and suddenly passes off the scene. And we don't know anything about him. And yet he was a king and a priest. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know when he was was born we don't know when he died we don't know any of that information we know nothing of what was required to be known in the Levitical priesthood not only was he a priest and a king but he also says Abraham paid tithes to him the lesser pays tithes to the greater not the other way around and then if that's not enough he says that Melchizedek blessed Abraham the greater blesses the lesser and so here is Abraham the father of our Jewish faith the greatest figure in Judaism other than Moses and here is Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek and being blessed by Melchizedek now what does that prove? It proves that he was greater than Father Abraham. And his priesthood came before the sons of Levi, not after. And his priesthood was greater than theirs. In fact, you can even argue that since Levi was in the loins of Abraham, Levi also paid tithes to Melchizedek when Abraham did so. We can say even more. If Melchizedek was the type, and Christ is the anti-type. And Melchizedek being the type was greater than Abraham. How much greater still is Jesus because he's the anti-type. He is the reality that the type pointed to. If the type is greater than Abraham, how much greater is the anti-type? He's laying out a very logical argument to them. His argument is that Christ may not be of the tribe of Levi, but his priesthood is greater than that of the sons of Levi. 
And the whole episode in Genesis 14 proves it. And so this whole analogy or typology with Melchizedek is designed to show that there was a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood before the law was given and Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood is likewise superior to the Levitical priesthood. And so again, what is he saying? He's saying you cannot go backwards you cannot abandon Christ and go backwards if you abandon Christ and go backwards relying on the Levitical priesthood you are not going to have one that can represent you before God because now Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that And so secondly here he points out that Jesus has the greatest priesthood of all. Pick up reading with me in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Don't forget what I've said about Jesus being an anchor for our soul. We're going to come around to that. But what is it that we find is written here in verse 23? What happened in verse 23? In verse 23 it's pointed out that there were lots and lots and lots of priests in the Old Testament. And why were there so many? Why were there so many? Because they all died. When one died, another had to move into his place. You say, Scott, why is all this important to begin with? It's important to begin with because as the Bible points out, you cannot go into the presence of God without a high priest. You have to have someone to represent you. Why? Because you and I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are guilty. You say, I'm a good person. Well, you may be a good person compared to your neighbor. I'm not disputing that in the eyes of men. You may be a good person. But we're not the standard, one another. We're not the standard we compare ourselves to. Up next to Jesus Christ, we all fall short and come short of the glory of God. God is holy and you and I are not. Folks, you cannot even waltz into the Oval Office of the White House and see the President without a representative if you think you're going to show up at the White House and just waltz right through the door and go in and sit down and talk to the president you've got another thing coming it's not going to happen now if you cannot go into the office of the president of the United States if you cannot go into the office of an earthly leader without a representative how much more You cannot go before the very throne of God Almighty. You have to have a representative. And so in the Old Testament you had these priests and what would they do? They would make sacrifices for their own sins because they were sinners too. And then they would make sacrifice for the sins of the, of the people. And then the high priest one time a year would go into the Holy of Holies and represent the people there. Make atonement for their sins on the mercy seat. And, and make atonement uh, for them and represent them. What I'm saying is a priest was absolutely necessary. Without a priest there would be no hope of being represented before God. But again the problem is all of these priests die. 
All of them. And that's why there had to be one after another. But then we come to Bethlehem. Amen. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh who dwelt among us. Can I get a witness? God the Son and the Son of God, He doesn't have to offer sacrifice for His own sin because He's without sin. The wages of sin is death. When Jesus was put to death for our sins, the grave could not hold Him because He was sinless. And so on day number three, what happened? He was raised from the dead. So thirdly, what's the application of Jesus' priesthood? He says, beginning in verse 23, He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. If you need a priest to represent you before God and to make atonement for your sin, but your priest dies, you're in deep, deep trouble. But if you have a high priest who never dies, you never have to worry. He is able to save to the uttermost. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't do anything halfway? He saves to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. Folks, I want you to realize something today. If you have come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, you never have to worry about standing before God one day and hearing the words, Depart from me, I never knew you. Titus 1-2 says, We have a God who cannot lie. He cannot lie. And He has promised to us eternal life. So if you've come to God through Him, you have eternal life. Now, knowing that, sometimes we're still like that father of that sick boy. You remember what he said to Jesus? I believe, but help my unbelief. Sometimes we're like that. But again, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And the Bible says you have peace with God and you have the forgiveness of your sins. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5 says, Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He saves to the uttermost. So that brings up a question. Are you really safe and secure in the arms of Jesus? Absolutely. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. In the mind and heart of God, it's as good as done. If you are justified through Jesus Christ, you are one day going to be glorified in His presence. It is a divine promise from God. Folks, I do not believe in the security of the believer because of anything in me. I believe in the security of the believer because I know the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said in John 10, He holds His sheep firmly in His hand. And no one or nothing shall ever be able to pluck us out of His hand. Nothing. Yes, you are secure in Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. And so what's the application? Come to Him. Come to Him. Now this portion of this verse mainly has to do with the doctrine of salvation. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. There's salvation in in no one else. But we can broaden this out even more. What's your need? 
What is your need? What's your need have to do with? It doesn't matter. Whatever your need is, Christ saves to the uttermost. If while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, don't you think that now that we are His children, saved through Him, that He can handle anything? Yes, indeed. If He can do the greater thing, which is save a lost sinner, don't you think He can do the lesser thing, looking after one of His children? That's the exact argument Paul uses in Romans 5. If God does the greater, he can certainly do the lesser. But there's yet another application to this. To those who say, Pastor, I've come to him. Notice what he goes on to say here. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. If he never dies, not only is your salvation not in jeopardy, but you also have one who always prays for you. Does that not blow your mind? The sovereign God of the universe who made everything, who holds everything together, is before the Father and He's praying for me and He's praying for you. We have the privilege of praying for one another, but we have the Lord Himself interceding for us. All of us at one time or another have said to somebody else in the church, will you pray for me? I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm facing a decision this week at work, and it's my privilege to be able to pray for people. But folks, I want you to realize, we have someone even greater praying for us. Jesus Christ himself. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's before the Father given us a salvation that is safe and secure. He ever liveth. He raised from the dead to die no more. Romans 6 says he's before the Father. He, he's opened the way to the Father for us. And he's before the Father and he's making intercession for us. You've got the greatest prayer partner you could ever dream of. Not only do you have the second person of the Trinity praying for you, you also have the third person of the Trinity praying for you, the Holy Spirit. Romans uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 26 talks about that. The Holy Spirit prays for us too. And he says there, sometimes we're weak. We don't know what to pray for. We get down on our knees and we say, Lord, I don't know how in the world I ought to pray for this situation. He says the Holy Spirit is able to make perfect intercession because he perfectly knows our heart and our need. He perfectly knows God's heart and God's will. And he's able to bring my need and God's will together in a perfect way so that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. So we have the second person of the Trinity who ever lives to make intercession for us. We have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, praying for us. Folks, is that not wonderful or what? You know, a lot of times people say, I I need to say exactly the right words. If God's going to hear me, boy, I've got to get the combination of words just right. I hope I prayed right. I hope I used the right words. Do you understand what the Bible is saying about the Holy Spirit? He's the one who changes things to make sure it is the right words. Sometimes all I need to do is go before God and say, Lord, help And that is enough. You don't have to worry about dialing up the right combination. Because he's making intercession for us. Folks, the only thing you and I need to worry about in our prayer life is making sure that our hearts are clean of sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, If I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me. So sin will be a barrier. Yes. So we need to deal with sin. But we don't need to worry, am I dialing up the right combination of words? 
Because the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity is before the throne of God making intercession for me and for you. So what do we need to do? Do you need to drop your anchor? No. You don't need to drop your anchor. Rather, you need to throw your anchor up where Jesus is at the right hand of God. Throw it up to Him. He's the anchor for your soul. Maybe your prayer is, God, my kids are breaking my heart. Throw your anchor up. Lord, I can't get through to my spouse. Throw your anchor up to the one that's an anchor for your soul. God, I've lost my job. Throw your anchor up. God, I'm looking for a mate who will be your choice for my life. Throw your anchor up. God, this trial that I'm going through right now, the waters are deep. The mountains are steep. This trial is too much for me. Throw your anchor up. God, I need strength in my office as I work around unbelievers. Throw your anchor up. He ever liveth to make intercession for you. Who is he? His name is Jesus. He's an anchor for your soul. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have one who will not fail and cannot fail. We will never be disappointed by trusting in Him. Lord, the beautiful storyline of the Bible is though He may not remove us from every trial and tribulation now, one day He will. And there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death. And in the meantime, He gives us strength and wisdom to make it through. As we're on the sea of life tossed to and fro by waves and storms, Christ is that anchor for our soul. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you love us so much. Not only to give us a Savior, but a Savior who's making intercession for us. Lord, I pray right now that you would be that anchor for that person being tossed to and fro. Be their strength, be their comfort, be their hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please?